This morning we're going to consider selfless living. Selfless living and our passage is Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through to 11. Today as we start chapter 2 of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Philippians we shall consider living in selfless unity as Christians. The scene has has already been set in chapter 1 verse 27. Have a look at chapter 1 verse 27. Paul said, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Remember conversation means conduct. It's not just what you say, it's what you do. Let it be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It was all about the gospel, magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ with Paul. As you see in that verse... There is a call for unity and for striving together for the sake of the gospel. The one who said those words most certainly practiced what he preached. Let's not forget the selfishness of Paul who was confined in Caesar's court in Rome at the time of writing this letter. However, his prayers were not for his release. They were not for earthly blessings nor for an easy time or for a comfortable retirement. Rather, his prayer was that the Philippians would strive together in unity against their adversaries for the furtherance of the gospel of Christ. Let's have a look at verse 1 in chapter 2 with that in mind. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. What we see here in chapter 2 is Paul, he exhorts the saints to adopt a certain attitude of mind and to behave in a certain way towards each other. And that is necessary for them in order to have a united stand against their adversaries and for the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel. They must stand together. They must be united. Importantly, before Paul gives any exhortations, he mentions certain gospel graces in verse 1. Straight away, verse 1, he mentions... Four gospel graces which every true Christian will have to varying degrees. The implication is that all of the exhortations to do this and to do that, uh, which we will consider in a little while, they ought to be achievable as a result of the grace and the power of God, as we see in verse 1, working in them. Verse 1 contains four gospel graces, four things that ought to be in place for everyone who has trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin. First of all, in verse 1, we see consolation 
or encouragement in Christ. Dear Christian, when you think about all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, he has lived a holy and sinless life on your behalf, he has paid the debt for your sin at the cross, he has risen from the dead, and you have newness of life, indeed you have everlasting life in him. You are safe and secure in his mighty hand. You are safe and secure in the hand of your Father in heaven. When you think of all those things, you have much to be encouraged about. Secondly, in verse 1, we see comfort of love. As a recipient of gospel graces, you ought to be greatly comforted by the fact that the love of God for you is indisputable. It was clearly manifested at the cross when the Lamb of God was wounded for your transgressions. What a show of divine love that was, eh? The love of God didn't just start at the cross either. As I say, it was a manifestation of that love. Rather, it is a love that stretches back to before the foundation of the world. It is a love that is forevermore. There is nothing that can separate you from that kind of love. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am persuaded (coughs) that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the kind of love that we have. And we ought to be comforted when we think of that love. When you think about the magnitude of the love of God for you, you really ought to be comforted in a way and in a measure that the unbelieving world knows absolutely nothing about. Talk about the love of God, they'll hear you, they'll hear what you're saying, but they won't have experienced it themselves. But you know that it's real, that love of God. As the hymn writer said, nor tongue nor pen can show the love of Jesus. What is it? None but his loved ones know. Also in verse 1 we see that we have fellowship of the Spirit. As individuals and as a church, born-again Christians are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and he unites all the members of that one body of Christ in their fellowship with their saviour and their fellowship with one another. We're not left to our own devices here. We have the spirit of God in each one of us, uniting us with Christ and with one another. Last of all, in verse 1 there, we see that we have bowels and mercies. The Lord has crowned you with loving kindness. He has crowned you and surrounded you with tender mercies, even though you deserve none of those things. I deserve none of those things. His greatest mercy towards you is that you are no longer under sentence of everlasting destruction. 
That is a mercy. In other words, as I was told yesterday, mercy is what? It's not getting what you deserve. We deserve everlasting destruction. But if you belong to Jesus, you have been delivered from from that bowels of mercy. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Dear friends, that really is the mercy of God. Now we come to the exhortations after Paul has uh, reminded the Philippians and us of the power and the grace of the gospel working in the children of God. He gets things in the right order here. Verse 2, let's have a look at it. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's the exhortation there. Chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that the Philippians already were a cause for the apostle to rejoice. Just look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul made his request to God with joy, with joy. However, what would make that joy complete for Paul would be an even closer unity. There's evidence of some disunity. Just look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. What's going on there, I wonder? There's clearly evidence of disunity. What precisely was going on between those two women is not given. But clearly there was some disagreement between them. Bickering can so easily damage a church and do damage to the gospel instead of furthering it. To prevent that from happening, the Philippians were to live out the gospel with one mind and in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, or as it is written a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, they were to stand fast in one spirit with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. And again, let me remind you, this is eminently doable. Why? Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not a big ask. The unity, the standing together. A word of caution is needed. A church must never put unity before truth. It is Bible truth that unites all true Christians. That means that there can be no unity with apostate churches that proclaim another gospel. As Spurgeon said, a chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tone. 
What they are saying is, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organisation regardless. Unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. So we have unity, but we have to be very careful that we don't let the devil in. Verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The exhortations continue here. First of all, we're given the negatives, what we are not to do. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. This is a warning against putting yourself first and doing the things that you do for selfish reasons and for your own glory, which is an empty glory. People who seek to promote and advance themselves usually step on others and they usually enjoy glorying in their own achievements. They enjoy blowing their own trumpet. I think we can all understand that. And why is that? Because this is something that we can all do if we're not careful. Seek to glorify ourselves. Instead, by the grace of God, in lowliness of mind, we are to esteem or consider others better than ourselves. That's what it says, isn't it? That most certainly is not something that comes naturally, is it? Esteeming others or considering others better than ourselves. The enemies of God, and that of course includes all who willfully reject the gospel of Christ, they do not esteem others better than themselves. It's actually a contradiction in terms for someone who does not belong to Jesus to to claim to esteem others better than themselves. As the Apostle Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud. This is the person who does not follow Jesus, who is not uh, in Christ. Out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ, who by faith abides in your heart, he is enthroned in your heart, if indeed you belong to him, you ought to consider others better than yourselves. That does not mean to say that you are to have a disparaging view of your God-given abilities. That would not honour God, would it? But it does mean having a high regard for others, Just imagine what this church and other churches would be like if every single person esteemed every other person better than themselves. If each one of us here considered everyone else better than ourselves. 
There'd be no bickering at all, would there? There'd be no competing with each other. There'd be no tittle-tattle. There'd be nothing. There'd be no favouritism, no little cliques, no looking down noses at certain Christians. None of that. If we, each one of us, esteemed everyone better than ourselves. James had something to say about that in his epistle. He said, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there. In a, or sit here at my footstool or you keep your distance from that person perhaps have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen my beloved brethren has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. A godless society encourages greater self-esteem, doesn't it? This is what we hear all the time. And you can buy books on it. How to improve your self-esteem. However, the Bible teaches others esteem. Esteeming others seeking the good of others and seeking to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ without concern for yourself. That's what it says here in these verses. Let's have a look at verses 5 through to 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross ultimately dear Christian you are to have the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ who in Matthew chapter 11 verse 29 declared himself to be meek and lowly in heart. That meekness and that lowliness was clearly seen in Jesus. For example, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. We see that in these verses. Verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because he is God. He is the Son of God. And by the way, I trust that all you Christians are able to turn to at least one or two verses of Scripture that clearly show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That really would be a tragedy if someone came up to you and said, show me in the Scriptures where it says that Jesus is God and you were fumbling around in your Bibles trying to find somewhere. There are verses such as Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, where God the Father says to his Son, 
Uh, I'll say that again. The father says to the son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. In that verse we can see Jesus is God in the fullest sense. Yet for all that, there was a time in history when the Son of God became flesh. As it is written in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Of no reputation comes from the Greek word kanoo, uh, sorry, kanoo, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, and it means to make empty. Hence the words of Charles Wesley, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The theologian John Valvoud explained that in the context of the incarnation, Christ did not empty himself of his deity, but of the outward manifestation. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The incarnation did not change the person and attributes of Christ in his divine nature, but added to it a complete human nature. To achieve the divine purpose of becoming the saviour, the divine glory needed to be veiled. Christ voluntarily, moment by moment, submitted to human limitations apart from sin. The humiliation was temporary. The incarnation was everlasting. Having stepped down from his glory into this dark world of sin, the incarnate Son of God satisfied the law's demands and he laid down his life as as an atonement for sin. If you are a Christian, Jesus was wounded for your transgressions and though he knew no sin, he was bruised for your iniquities. He carried your sins in his body on the cross. That level of humility and that level of obedience to his father's will is humility of the highest order. That is not something we attain to. That's Jesus, the Son of God. But still, the apostle said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's have a look at verse 9. Wherefore God also have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The first word that can be seen there in verse 9 is wherefore or therefore. And that tells us that what follows is because of what has just happened, what we have just been considering. Therefore, because the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself even unto the death of the cross, God has highly exalted him. It's in that order. Jesus humbled himself unto the death of the cross. God highly exalted him. 
It is because Jesus sought not a name for himself that God has given him a name above every name. Having come into the world not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, God has decreed that every knee should bow to Jesus. Every knee should bow to Jesus. Note that God has not merely exalted the Lord Jesus Christ, God has highly exalted him. Just as we will never be able to plumb the depths of the humiliation of Jesus, neither will our understanding ever be able to reach the height of his exaltation, that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Highly exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Who else can be said to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Abraham? No. Moses? Is Moses seated at the right hand of the throne of God? No. What about the Apostle Paul? Not at all. No one other than Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Having said that, don't imagine for one second that the Lord Jesus Christ, who once sat down and ate with sinners, is now unapproachable. Not at all. He intercedes for his redeemed as their great heavenly high priest. By faith, he abides in their hearts. Before his ascension, he said to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And in John chapter 17, verse 24, in his high priestly prayer, here we go again, I always come back to this verse. Jesus declared his will to his Father that all whom God has given him will be with him where he is to behold his glory. God has highly exalted Jesus And the will of Jesus is that his redeemed will be with him where he is to behold his glory. How wonderful that is. As Spurgeon said, it is and ever will be the acme or the highest point of our desires and the climax of our prayers to behold Jesus exalted, King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, looking again at verse 11, you'll see that everyone will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus with their knees and with their mouths. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That will include every one of you Everyone, that includes the atheists, that includes people that maybe they're not atheists, but they've got no interest in the Saviour's blood. You will bow your knee before Jesus. You will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, everyone. When a person is bowed low, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is acknowledging 
that which is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. If you can find it, I suggest you turn to it with me. Lovely verse of scripture. 1 Chronicles, again tucked away in the Old Testament, but what a beautiful verse. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. When you bow the knee and when you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is what you're essentially saying. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, it is written, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Don't wait until the second coming of Jesus. Don't wait for the day of judgment to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus. Far better to do it today. Far better to do it now if you haven't done so. The time for delay is over. Don't worry about friends. Don't worry about anyone. Get on your knees. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believing that he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, that he became obedient unto God, that he fulfilled the law of God on your behalf, that he took upon him your sin in his body when he was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. Believing that on the third day he rose from the dead and that now he is highly exalted, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.